you have your Bibles, please turn them with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We looked at verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. And now we're going to continue looking at verses 3 through 7. And so I'm going to read, since they go together, verses 1 through 7 for us. But before I do, I remind you, as always, brothers and sisters, that this is the word of the living God. And so may we approach it and receive it from the Lord as such. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Beloved of God, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And so let's ask the Lord together now to teach us wisdom by his word and by his spirit. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you, along with the Son and the Spirit, have searched us and known us as your people. You know when we sit down and when we rise up, and you discern our thoughts from afar. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us, Lord. It is too high, and we are unable to attain it. And so we pray that if there is any grievous way in us, that you would grant to us repentance, that we would turn from our sin and in faith turn unto you. By your Spirit, lead us in the way everlasting and teach us now your thoughts, for they are precious to us, and we long to know you more. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, last week, again, we began looking at this section where Paul turns to the importance of prayer in the public worship of God. And we saw that in in chapter 1, really, he was focusing on that element of the word preached in which God speaks to us. And now here at the beginning of chapter 2, he turns to the element of our speaking back to God in prayer. And we saw that Paul commands the Ephesians through Timothy that they are to pray all kinds of prayers for all sorts of people, especially those in authority over them who are unbelievers, to the end that the government would fulfill its role so that the church would then be able to fulfill its role of spreading the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we looked at the priority of prayer in the church. 
And now Paul continues this topic in verses 3 through 7. And tonight what we're going to look at is not the priority of prayer in the local church, but we're going to look at the necessity of prayer in the church. Why is it necessary that we corporately gathered are a praying people? And so to serve as a bit of an outline, we're going to look at four reasons that Paul gives why prayer is necessary for the church. Four reasons that we're going to see in the text. First of all, in verse 3, we're going to see that prayer is necessary for the church because it's good and it pleases God. That would probably be enough for Paul to just stop there. That's reason enough for us to do it. It's good and it pleases God. We'll see that in verse 3. But then Paul goes on to say prayer is necessary for the church. Secondly, because it's God's appointed means to save his elect. And so we'll see that in verse 4, that the Lord uses our prayers to draw the elect to himself. Those are his appointed means to bring about that end. Thirdly, we'll see that prayer is necessary for the church because there is one God. We'll see that in the first half of verse 5. There aren't many gods, There's not a God of the Jews and then multiple gods of the Gentiles. No, there's one God. And so it's necessary then for the church to pray. And then fourthly, finally, we'll see that Paul says that prayer is necessary for the church. Why? Because there is only one mediator. We'll see that beginning in the second half of verse 5 and all the way through verse 7. And so it's my hope and prayer this evening as we have these reasons that we ought to pray rolling around in our minds and behold the glory behind why we should pray, that we would be motivated as God's people, as the Spirit empowers us, to be committed to praying any time that the church gathers to do so. Because, brothers and sisters, it's not just a priority as we saw last week. It's a necessity for the church. And so I pray that the Lord would use his word to that end. Let's look at the first reason then that Paul gives us as to why prayer is necessary for the church in verse 3, where we see that Paul says it's necessary because it's good and it pleases God. Look at verse 3. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Now, as I said, that might just be reason enough for us to pray. Why is prayer necessary for the church, corporately, for us to pray together? It's because it's good, and it pleases God. Now, what does Paul mean when he says that it's good? When he says that it's good, it's because the Lord has commanded it for us to do. And so it is good for us to commune with him, to have fellowship with him. And so we ought to do it because it's good. And it's excellent in the eyes of the Lord. It's a beautiful thing in the eyes of the Lord when he sees his people praying. And so that's why Paul goes on to say it's not just good, and so we ought to pray together as God's people. But he says it's also, what? Pleasing to God. It's pleasing to God when we, in the specific context, as the gathered church, pray for unbelievers in particular who are in authority over us. And so, brothers and sisters, can you think of a better motive than the fact that when we pray together, it pleases God? Doesn't that shock you? Doesn't that kind of stun you? We who are fallen, 
even in our saved, redeemed state, are able to actually please God by praying? And why is it pleasing to God? It's pleasing to God because he's commanded us to do it. And now that he's regenerated our hearts and given us the gift of faith and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we obey the Lord in faith. And we do actually pray. And then this pleases him. Isn't that an incredible reality? Our prayers please God because he's revealed to us, charged us in this passage that we ought to pray, and then he accepts those prayers. How? Through the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ so that they're pleasing to him. And so this ought to motivate us. Again, anytime the church is gathered for prayer, we ought to come together knowing, I don't want to miss that. I don't want to check out in the pastoral prayer in the morning when we're praying for our governing officials and for the people groups to whom our missionaries are seeking to minister Christ. I want to be there. I want to join the saints in that because it's pleasing to God and it's good. And so I love that we're given this motive. And again, I can't think of a greater reason why we should gather to pray than the fact that it is pleasing to God and beautiful in his sight. So why is it necessary for the church to gather together to pray? Because it's good and it pleases God. The second reason that Paul gives us why prayer is necessary, it's because it's God's appointed means to save his elect. So look there at verse 4 with me because we see that very clearly. So again, he's talking about God, our Savior, And he says that he desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, don't miss Paul's logic here. Remember, he's told us in verses 1 and 2 that the church ought to pray specifically, especially for unbelievers who are in authority over us and for all kinds of people. And why ought we to do that? Because what Paul is saying here is the Lord uses our prayers as we bring them before him for all types of unbelievers, especially those in authority over us who don't believe. The Lord uses our prayers to then draw unbelievers to himself, to set circumstances in motion so that they'll hear the good news, perhaps from our mouths. But you understand it's not just enough for us to preach the good news to folks. The Lord has to make that effectual in their lives. He has to call them, and he's pleased to use the means of our pleading with him to save them to actually bring that about. Now, here's the question that we have to answer, because I'm sure some of you are already thinking this in your head. Okay, so what does Paul mean, though, when he says that he desires or wills for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? Well, there's a couple of things that we know it doesn't mean. We know that that doesn't mean, because it might at face value sound like, okay, God wills for all people to be saved. Well, we know that not all people are saved. We're not universalists, and if you are a universalist here tonight, you're not confessing the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's not orthodoxy. It's not what the testimony of the Lord's word gives. So we're not universalists. We're particularists. We don't believe all people are saved. We believe that some are saved. So then what is Paul saying here? Is he saying that the Lord wills for all people to be saved and yet it doesn't come about? Well, that's problematic, isn't it? 
Because what do we believe the testimony of Scripture is? Can the Lord do all things? Some of you children probably know the answer to this. Yes, God can do all his holy will, right? So, okay, that's true, but then is this passage contradicting that? That God wills for all to be saved, but yet not all are saved? No. So then some theologians want to get into various aspects of God's will. Well, God wills this in one sense, but not in another sense. I think there's a much easier answer to this question. And it's got a a very good pedigree. The likes of Augustine held to this view. John Calvin, Francis Turretin. So what's the solution? Well, let me just show you the solution actually in the text. There's a couple uses of the same Greek word, all people here. But let's just go back to verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, where we read, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. All right, so how are we to understand that text? We to understand all people? It's the same phrase in the Greek, same words. Are we to understand that to mean every single individual human being? Well, if that's the case, brothers and sisters, then we've got a problem because we're not obeying that passage. And it's impossible for us to obey that passage, to pray for every single individual human being. I don't even know who every single individual human being that exists. So how are we supposed to obey that? Well, again, we saw last week, the best way to understand all people there is all kinds of people, all sorts of people. And so what that clues us into then in Paul's use of all people here in that God desires all people to be saved is God desires for all kinds of people to be saved, not from one specific people group, not one specific type of person. No, his elect whom he in love gave to his son in eternity past, are all kinds of people from all different types of groups. Not from one specific language, not from one specific geographic location or economic situation. It's all kinds of people. And so he wills that his elect from every tongue and tribe and nation will be saved. And brothers and sisters, we know But that's exactly what is going to happen. And here's the incredible thing. One of the means that the Lord uses to accomplish that is the prayers of his people gathered together pleading for the souls of the lost. Isn't that incredible? This is why it's necessary that we pray. God doesn't have to use us. He doesn't have to use our prayers. And yet he's chosen to use us in that way. What a privilege. And so he commands us to do so. And so we ought to do so. And this is why you'll see us pray as we do as a church, both in the morning service and in the evening service. You hear us pray for governing officials, that the Lord would cause them to rule justly, that the Lord would be pleased to save them. We pray for our president, our vice president, our governor. We pray for all sorts of judges We pray for our neighbors by name, our co-workers by name, our unbelieving family and friends by name. We pray for all sorts of people. Why? Because we know that the Lord has his elect scattered among them, and we don't know who they are. It's not like, as Spurgeon said, there's not some yellow line put on the back of the elect so that we'll know, oh, they're elect, so let's pray for them. 
We don't know who they are. But here's what we do know. They're from every tongue and tribe and nation. And so we ought to pray not for one specific group, but for all kinds of people. And the Lord is pleased to use our prayers to then save his elect. And so it's necessary. It's not optional. It's not just a priority. It's necessary for the church to pray for the lost. So we've seen that corporate prayer is necessary because it pleases God. And it's God's appointed means to bring about the salvation of his elect. And then thirdly, we see that corporate prayer is necessary. Why, Paul says, because there is only one God. So look at verse 5 with me. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now this would be something, this reality that there is one God if there were any Jews, which there's a high likelihood that there were, believing Jews in the church in Ephesus, this wouldn't have been hard for them to agree with, would it? Because the people of God in the Old Testament have always confessed what? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Shema, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. So they were accustomed to confessing with their mouths and worshiping the one God. And what Paul is saying here is that this is so important because there's not other gods. Because if there were other gods, if there was a tribal God over here for this group of Gentiles, and then another one over here, and then another one over here, and then the Jews have their God, then all you have to do is be reconciled to one of those tribal gods. You just have to be at peace with one of them and they'll take care of you. And so conceivably, you don't just have to be reconciled to one God in particular. There's all sorts of gods. So just make sure that you're reconciled with one of them. And Paul says, no, no, no. There's not one God for that group of people and another God for that group of people. He's pushing against this exclusivist, the outworkings of this exclusivist approach of the Jews. He's our God and not their God. We don't pray for the Gentiles. I'm thankful I'm not a Gentile dog. Those are the kind of things that they would pray. Or the Gnostics, who are like, well, our little group has a corner on this knowledge, and those people don't, and so they don't have access to our God, and we don't want them to have access to our God. Paul says, no, 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 there is one God of all. It's the same reality that Paul points to, by the way, in Romans chapter 3, Verses 29 and 30. He says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. One God for all. And so what Paul is saying is there is this one God then that you need to be reconciled to. The one God who is your creator. The one God who is your sustainer. The one God who is your judge. And you will answer to him. So you can't flee to some other God and I'm reconciled to this God and so now I'm good, I'm protected. No, there's one God that you have to deal with. And you will stand before him. No one will escape the judgment of the one true living God. And so what's the result of that then? In part, brothers and sisters, the result of that is this is why we must share the gospel to unbelievers here in Bakersfield. 
there is one God that they are going to have to answer to. And if they are not at peace with him through the one mediator of the covenant of grace, the Lord Jesus Christ, then they are objects of God's wrath who are destined for hell. And we do not want that for them. And so we share the good news with them. This is also why we send missionaries to the ends of the earth, to people groups who have never heard the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ in the history of the world. It's because there's one God that all men must answer to. And because we love unbelievers, those who are fellow image bearers of God, we pray for them and share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ with them. And we pray to that one God on their behalf. We don't pray to multiple gods. And we don't say, well, as long as they're reconciled to some other God, they'll be fine. No, we plead with the only God who can save them, who they must be reconciled to. And we beseech him in prayer. So prayer is necessary because it pleases God. It's necessary because God uses our prayers to save his elect. It's necessary because there's only one God. And by the same logic, and this is the fourth point, we pray, and it's necessary that we do as the church, because there's only one mediator. There's only one mediator. So look at, again, verse 5 with me, and we'll read through to verse 7. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So you see how Paul's logic carries over here? His logic is if there's only one God, and so there aren't multiple gods or a variety of gods you can choose to be reconciled to. And just as there's only one God, there's also one mediator. There aren't multiple mediators. No matter what people tell you, right, there's many paths to God. Lies. There's one way. And it's the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. And he alone can mediate this covenant of grace. He's uniquely qualified because he's called by the Father to do this. And also because he's, as the Puritans said, he's got a hand on each party that this covenant concerns, the covenant of works. He's got a hand, as it were, on God, and he's got a hand on man. He's able to be that mediator between God and man to bridge that infinite gulf that our sin in Adam and our own sinful rebellion has created. And so he must be, and he is, truly God and truly man. So he's that umpire that Job was longing for. In Job chapter 9, oh, to have someone mediate between me and God. But there's no one. There's no one. Of course, Christ was mediating even then. Job just wasn't aware of it. But here's the reality. Jesus is uniquely qualified to do this because he's truly God and he's truly man. He's truly man so that he can represent us. An angel couldn't represent us because it doesn't share in our nature. He had to be like us in every way, a human body and soul, yet without sin. And he took that on himself. The Son of God assumed a human nature so that he could accomplish our redemption. And only God would be able to satisfy 
the payment that God required for our sins. We incurred an infinite debt. And we're not infinite, so we can't pay that debt back. The God-man Jesus Christ can. And he did. And that's what he came to do. He died for our sins on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended to the Father's right hand. He fulfilled all righteousness, so that is righteousness is given to us. So he is the one, as Paul says here, who gave himself as a ransom. And again, it says for all. For all who? For all the elect. Not for every single human individual. Jesus, as he says in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, he did not come, the Son of Man, to be served, but to serve, and to what? To give his life as a ransom for many. For all those whom in love the Father gave to the Son. And Jesus says, I will not lose a single one. And so what do we see? There's no other way. There's only one way through the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the mediator. And so Paul says, because that's true in verse 7, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Because there's only one mediator, I've come to share the good news that you can be reconciled through him and through him alone. And that's not just good news for the Jews. It's yes for the Jews first, but for the Gentiles. Otherwise, brothers and sisters, we wouldn't be here this evening. (laughs) And we wouldn't be saved and we wouldn't be redeemed. So what's Paul's point? Are you seeing it here? He's saying we are to pray for all kinds of people as the church. Because we're praying to the one true God who alone can save his elect from the nations. And we pray because there aren't many mediators. There's only one mediator. The man, Jesus Christ. An emphasis here on his humanity, not to the exclusion of his divinity, but to remind us that we cannot ascend to the heavens. No, God condescended in the person and work of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to reconcile us to God. And so we pray for the Lord to give his elect the gift of faith, that they might have fellowship with God the Father through the mediation of the Son and by the regeneration that the Holy Spirit works in their hearts. So brothers and sisters, do you see the beauty of these realities? Do you see the beauty of the fact that We get to have communion and fellowship with the triune God. We lost that in Adam, and we couldn't regain it, but the second Adam has regained it for us. And now we're able to do that which is good by his grace and pleases God who saved us. God is our Savior in Christ. And so what better motive do you need than that to pray? to draw together in communion and fellowship, and to know that the Lord, though he doesn't need our prayers, uses our prayers to bring the elect to himself. I guarantee you, the Lord used the prayers of many people to bring about our salvation. That you wouldn't be here tonight, I wouldn't be here tonight, if our parents or family members or friends hadn't pleaded with the Lord pled with him to save our souls. And the Lord appointed those prayers and used them to draw us to himself. And we now have the privilege of being used by him to the same end, to put on display 
His glorious grace. And this is necessary because there's one God that we've been reconciled to. Through the one mediator, Jesus Christ. And now we have the privilege of praying to that one same God, communing with him and being used by him to see many drawn near. Do you see the motives that Paul gives us? The realities behind why it's necessary for us to pray. And here's the thing. The Lord Jesus, by his spirit, will make us these kinds of people. Prayerful people who come together and rejoice knowing what's happening when we pray so that we don't want to miss it because it's necessary to the praise of his glorious grace. Lord, make us, we pray, a prayerful people, understanding the incredible grace that we've been shown and what an unspeakable privilege this is. Help us to behold the glories of your Son and how wonderful it is that we're restored to you. And may these realities affect the way that we pray even now as we transition to a time of prayer. We ask this in the name of the one true living God and for your sake. Amen.